Amen. Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 today. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get started. This is God's Word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these unbelievable examples of lives of faith that we find in this chapter. I ask that you would teach us how we can rightly follow this, how we can rightly look at these lives, be inspired by them, and that you would grant us through that extra measures of faith. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're... Continuing this morning to walk through this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, and look at this myriad, this cloud of witnesses um, from the Old Testament that exhibit lives of amazing, unspeakable faith. Now, pastors and biblical scholars get cheeky with this chapter, and they call it the Hall of Faith, of course, playing off the Hall of Fame. And because it's just this list of example after example after example. And last week, David, David Gentino gave us a kind of key that we can use to interpret and apply these lives, uh, uh, apply these examples of faith in our own lives. These are examples of faith and then obedience. But he said, David said, that there really are two different pitfalls that you can fall into when you look at Hebrews chapter 11. There is a way to kind of read through this chapter, see these examples of lives of faith, hold them up as the pinnacle of Christian living, as these kind of ultimate and impeccable examples of faith and obedience, and then labor with all of our might to do precisely the same sort of acts that they did. And that, of course, would be one pitfall. That's the way of legalism. There's also... Another path, and this path says that faith is sort of an intellectual assent to certain pieces of doctrine or Christian dogma, and it has very little to do with our lives, and so we should just live however we feel, and that path, of course, is the path of license. But the trajectory that Hebrews 11 sends us on is different, and David said that's really the trajectory of longing and desire, this trajectory that longs to find faith animate everything that we do in our lives. That's the trajectory that we want to live on, looking at this, wanting to have faith, seeking the city that is to come, and then seeing how God plays that out in obedience. Well, today, we're going to look at an amazing example of that, one that illustrates allegiance and obedience and faith in dramatic fashion, And that comes in the story of the binding of Isaac. Now, I'm not going to assume that everyone knows the story of the binding of Isaac. I know that many of you will. Many of you have heard it your whole life. Maybe some of you have never heard it. So I'm going to retell the story briefly. I want to retell kind of Abraham's experience in having a son, having 
this thing that God promised him and then see where the writer to the Hebrews takes us with it. The story, of Hebrew, uh, the story of Abraham is the story of a man seeking the fulfillment of God's promise on his life. Now, when Abraham was a very, very old man, God promised him a child. And he promised him that from that child, he was going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This child he was supposed to have with his wife, Sarah. Now, Sarah, of course, is old and barren. And they knew that. And so this promise came to them as something that was virtually unbelievable. It was something that came to them as totally a shot in the dark, something that they thought would never in a million years happen. And so they used their reason, they used their human ways of thinking about things, and they said, surely God must not mean that he wants you to have a son with me, Sarah. He must mean that you want to have a son with my maiden, my servant, Hagar. And Abraham does that. He fathers a child with Hagar, and God comes back and says, no, that is not at all what I told you. I want to give you a son with your wife, Sarah, and it's through that son, it's through him, that the promise that I promised you is going to come to pass. So God does that. He's faithful to Abraham and Sarah. He gives them a son. Now, we don't have very much information at all in between the time after Sarah and Abraham have their son Isaac. The Bible tells the story of Isaac's birth and then the fate of Hagar and Ishmael. And then we move directly into the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. We don't really have anything about this family during Isaac's younger years, and that's interesting to me. Maybe there's, I mean, maybe it's just that there's very little to say about a family enjoying the simple pleasures of raising a child in their younger years. But what happens is Isaac is born in Genesis chapter 21, and then the, verse, the first verse of chapter 22 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And the very next verse just simply says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his young donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and left. Now, that's amazing. That is a stark, bleak command to come from God. And when you read that in Genesis chapter 21 and chapter 22, you think, where's the emotion? There's no psychology. There's nothing existential in Genesis chapter 21 and 22. It's just a bleak, bitter explanation of those few things. Just simply take your son, bind him, and sacrifice him. And Abraham does immediately. But this story is very difficult for us to understand. How could the God who promised everything that he promised to Abraham ask him to do something so horrendous? And even though we know that, at the mo- that God stops Abraham at the very last moment, it still feels like a cruel demonstration of power to put his father and his son through this. Or maybe we look at that and we suspect that Abraham has somehow convinced himself in his mind of something that God would never do. But we don't get the sense from Abraham anywhere else. And truly, Genesis 22 
gives us a painfully tender portrait of Abraham and Isaac's relationship. Now, however that story strikes us, what we're interested in is how the writer to the Hebrews understands Genesis chapter 22. If we wanted to go back and examine the book of Genesis and try to interpret the psychology of how the writer understands that moment, we could. But we're in the book of Hebrews, and so we just simply want to ask, what does the writer to the Hebrews think about it? And so these are the two questions that I think you can ask from Hebrews chapter 11, these three verses. The first is, what was Abraham's faith in? What was Abraham's faith in? What was the object of Abraham's faith? Where was he going with it? What enabled him to take such a great risk? What was Abraham's faith in? We know that Abraham's faith, we know the simple answer, right? We know that Abraham's faith was in God. We know that to be true. But what we want to ask is, what precisely was it about God that enabled him to take such an incredible risk? Now, I'm using the word risk in the sense of an action that exposes you to loss or injury. For Abraham, this loss would have been ultimate. This was not simply to expose himself to the loss that would come to the enormous grief that would come from losing his child at his own hand, which would have been enormous, but also to jeopardize Abraham's entire identity in God. You guys understand that, and this is what the writer says. It's not just the loss of a son. Abraham's entire identity, his relationship with God, was fueled by the fact that Isaac was promised to him and that through Isaac, God was going to populate the earth with people that knew him and trusted him. So this is a loss that's compounded a thousand fold. And so what was it about God that enabled Abraham to take that kind of risk? Now we know that there could potentially be a God that you would never risk anything with, right? There could be a God out there that would never give you the confidence, never give you the ability to risk. Jesus actually tells a story that's sort of analogous to that. And you guys will remember this. He tells a parable about a king that goes away for a while and gives three of his servants different sums of money called talents. So he gives one servant one sum of money. He he gives the second one a sum of money. He gives the third one a sum of money. The first two, they take that money and they go, and the king goes away, they go and they invest it. And when the king comes back, they've made money on their investment, right? And the king says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. The third servant was afraid of the king, and so he takes that money and he balls it up in a handkerchief and he buries it in the backyard. And when the king comes back, he tells the king, look, I was a, I'm afraid of you because I knew that you're a severe man and you reap where you did not sow. And so rather than risking doing anything with this money, I took it, I put it in a handkerchief and I buried it in the backyard. And the king says, woe to you, wicked and slothful servant. He was unwilling to take the risk. Now there's only such a thing as risk because there's such a thing as ignorance. Actions that we deem to be risky only exist because we can't be fully assured of their outcome. And in general, 
we use reason, we use our minds to discern whether or not a certain risk is worth taking. Because risk and ignorance go hand in hand, and this is the answer to the question, what is it about God? Because risk and ignorance go hand in hand, God cannot take risks. He's never ignorant. He's omniscient. God knows the outcome of all of his decisions and actions long before they happen and knows the outcomes of the decisions of every human being ever to live. He never, ever risks. So the risks that the Bible calls us to are right and good primarily because God is trustworthy. We can take risks because God doesn't risk. That's the way that thing works. Abraham could take the risk of binding his son Isaac because he knew that God was faithful. We said uh, a couple weeks ago that God is predictable. And that's what we mean by this. He always, always acts with mercy and grace and compassion on those that love him. Now, there is a tendency, if you were to... um, I don't know if you would ever be compelled to do this, but if you were compelled to go to a library and pull off the shelf a piece of modern biblical scholarship on the book of Genesis and read it, or maybe you just read the story of Genesis chapter 22, like the commentary on that, you would find more often than not writers saying that the story of the binding of Isaac proves that the God of the Old Testament was wild and cruel and unpredictable. That he is not trustworthy. Because this is something so horrendous and so fantastic and so unbelievable. We can't, this God is so wild and unpredictable. But that is the opposite of what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us. Listen to, look at verse 19 in your Bibles. He considered that God was even able, was able even to raise him from The dead. The writer believes that Abraham's faith in God's consistency was so strong that he was going to slaughter his son because he believed that God must have been planning on raising him from the dead. I mean, think about this from Abraham's mind. God told me that he would give me children as numerous as the grains of the sand at the sea, and he told me to kill my son. Okay. God is going to reconcile those two things somehow. I don't have to do it for him. I want want to go ahead and follow God in obedience, even though I don't see the way that's going to play out. Now, we're going to come back to this and just ask kind of practical questions about what this could mean for the church. But that's that's that for now. And so the second question is, we said, what does Abraham have faith in? Who does Abraham have faith in to be able to do this? And then the second question from this passage is, Why did God include this test in his fulfillment of his promise? It is still odd to me, very similar to what we said with Abel a month ago, it is very odd to me that this radical event happens at the very beginning of the Bible. Why does God do something so unbelievable so early on in the history of salvation? You can meditate on that mystery forever, but maybe let's just try a very, very simple answer to that question. It seems to me that as you read the Bible from Adam and Eve all the way to the book of Revelation, that the promise of God is always highlighted 
when being fruitful, when the command to be fruitful and multiply looks more like being thwarted by barrenness. Adam is commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And Jesus, when he commissions his disciples, says, you need to go into all, you need to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go be fruitful and multiply. But in almost every single solitary case where God's people begin to take up the mantle of that commission, it looks more like being thwarted by barrenness. And so the fulfillment of the promise of God to his people will happen because God acts, not because we do. He will get the glory and we won't. That recurring element in the drama of history with God might as well come into full climax early. God isn't in the business of being unpredictable. And so even though Genesis 22 is both horrible and majestic and a source of fascination to us, it's finally a story of hope in God that becomes faith. The fruitfulness of Abraham and the multiplication of his family will never be misunderstood as something that Abraham earned. It's a gift, and it comes to him by faith. And it comes early, and it comes in the most intense fashion possible because God finally is a father himself. When you begin to think about this thing, and you begin to think about how this works over and over and over again, in salvation history, and you begin to think about God as a father commanding Abraham to do something like this, inadequacy, your feelings of inadequacy to talk about it fall out entirely. They come all over themselves. I don't, I feel inadequate to speak of God's greatness and majesty as a father because I just can't articulate the depth of his tenderness in a way that's appropriate. He has infinitely the quality that we've all hope for from our earthly fathers. That is, faithfulness expressed through consistency. That's what we mean by predictability. I want my children to know and believe that I'm consistent. My kids come home and have to tell me something hard. I don't want them wondering what dad is going to say or do. I don't want to be known as unpredictable. I want to be totally predictable. Even if they know discipline is coming because of what they tell me, I want them to know that discipline is coming because a father only disciplines a child that he loves. That's what we mean by predictability. Now, God is predictable in that way, but he's also surprising. What's surprising about God is his utter consistency because no one in this room is predictable. All of us are completely unpredictable. None of us fully fulfill that job of being consistent with the people that love us and lean on us in the way that God does. So it doesn't stunt the fact that God is wild and free and consistent. Now, God would not make Abraham wait for Isaac to be resurrected from the dead. Isaac wasn't going to spend... Three days in a tomb. That was a test that God was going to reserve for himself and for the one faithful Hebrew, his own son. That final sacrifice and that great vindication of Jesus in resurrection exposes the inability of the world and the powers and principalities of darkness to triumph over the faithful. That's why the story sits right in the middle of a chapter 
that's intended to inspire a suffering church to move towards Jesus in faith. The Hebrews had a God that raised the dead. And so if their fate recapitulated or echoed the fate of Abel's, their blood would cry out in judgment from the ground, but their renewed bodies would walk in a new earth forever. They could risk their lives in order that they might gain a real reward for eternity. What I want to do in closing is give you maybe just three practical things that I think you can do. Three practical, very, very uh, possible, actionable risks that you can take even between now and the new year that would exhibit your faith and would exhibit very real obedience. Number one. Begin discipling those closest to you by reading the Bible with them and praying for them. Now, this is for everyone. Those married with children, those not, those single, those married without children, those married with children gone, whoever, it doesn't matter. Take the, pers- the people that are closest to you and begin taking a few minutes, say three or more times a week, and speak the Bible to them and pray with and for them. That's a risk. That's a huge risk. First of all, because we all know it's, totally socially cumbersome to do those things. And we all feel inadequate. We all feel inadequate in those moments to do something like that. But it's also a risk because God has the potential to speak to you in front of another person, which is totally risky. If God speaks to you in front of another person, there's a built-in individual that's going to hold you on the trajectory of faith. Number two, begin to confess your sins and celebrate God's goodness with someone. I know that this seems like maybe it's a, it seems like a big risk, right? It seems hard to begin to talk about the things that we're the most ashamed of or for the, about the things that make us feel the most vulnerable. But I think it's also the most critical. When we confess our sins to each other, we don't want to confess just simply the obvious ones, like don't. Don't confess pride. Everybody knows you're proud already. Don't do that. Confess real sins. Confess the envy and the lust and the addictions. Confess the things that actually are going to matter, that God is going to hear, that's going to expose you, and that that person can look in your life from that point on and find. Faith in that risk will get victory. I promise you it will. You'll find freedom from shame. You'll gain a friend, and the Spirit will begin a work in you of real deliverance. I totally have faith that He will. But don't only focus on that. Learn to look for God's goodness in the world. I don't think that we do that nearly, nearly enough. If we look around the world and begin to locate places where God is moving, our faith is going to grow. And you'll begin to expect things from God that you didn't expect from Him before. And probably you're going to discern that He's much more active in your life than you ever, ever, ever thought that He will. There's unbelievable power in beginning to talk very plainly and tangibly about God's faithfulness to you and His goodness to you and your faith will grow. And then thirdly, pray for God to extend greater, more monumental risks to you as your lives move towards eternity. 
This is the greatest risk of all. It also sounds like a cop-out in a sermon. Pray for something, you know, pray that God would give you more risk-taking opportunities, but it is an enormous risk. We all want God to increase these things in our lives, and God will do that as we ask for them, and then we, we, we see him respond in action. It, it seems to me that um, the Psalms are full of this kind of thing, that the Psalms are full of this asking God to move and to act, and then a willingness to look for where he does move and act, to see his wondrous works to the children of men. The psalmist says that all the time in the Psalms. We don't know what God will ask of us, and so praying that his voice will crowd out and consume all the other voices in our head is an enormous prayer. Faith does things that can only be explained by the assurance that God will do what he has promised in spite of every uh, single conceivable obstacle. Faith isn't compatible with the things of the world. And so for Abraham, that meant that if Isaac died, everything that God had promised would be compromised and would ultimately fail. So what's he going to do? Is he going to reason his way out of obedience or have faith that the utter impossible is going to come to pass. For all of us, faith expressed through obedience feels hard. It feels really, really hard. It can mean a painful conversation. It can sometimes mean things like a change of career. It can mean sharing the gospel with somebody that's going to ultimately reject Jesus and ultimately reject you as a friend. It's when you consider every possible outcome and you're sure that obedience won't end well. If that happens to you, then you have caught just a tiny, tiny little glimpse of the circumstance and situation that God put Abraham in. But it's in that place that you're primed and in position for God to act on your behalf, prove himself trustworthy, and increase your faith. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you that it's not us that is acting in faith without your help, or we aren't acting in faith without your help. We pray that you would increase it, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to give us grace, that you would give us your spirit so that we could have lives that earnestly seek not this city here on earth, but the city that is to come. In your name we pray. Amen.